Welcome to the IEEE Blockchain Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This podcast series, entitled Research Notes in Blockchain, is hosted by Quinn Dupont, former assistant professor at the University College Dublin School of Business and founder of Alumni, a Web3 startup with a mission of putting university diplomas on blockchain. Quinn is also the author of Cryptocurrencies and Blockchains. In this episode, Dr. Paul Dylan Enos, Assistant Professor of Business at University College Dublin, provides his perspective on Web3 and shares insights on the positive and possible negative impacts of monetization within the art world. He also discusses his research into the political aspects of the cryptocurrency ecosystem and the importance of Web3 governance. All right, thanks, Paul, for joining us today. I really wanted to speak with you today specifically because your work goes beyond some of the now older discussion around Bitcoin and crypto as, you know, sort of forms of payment and and, and these kind of traditional discussions and, and, and get us a little bit up to speed on questions around Web3. And so why don't we just start right there? What, what do you think Web3 is and, and, and what is it doing and where is it going? I think this is one of the most uh, complicated and contested terms that I've encountered in quite some time. It seems that Web3 means something different to uh, different factions, let's say. Um, from my perspective, Web3 is the, in, in its cryptocurrency sense, in the sense of uh, crypto with a capital C, it means the more progressive or creative wing of crypto, especially the creator economy, so non-fungible tokens, social tokens, places like Friends with Benefits and Sea Club, which are essentially places that creative, artistic people who use blockchains tend to um, congregate online. And so the term, as I first encountered it, usually meant a demographic that was more liberal-minded and less interested in, say, the traditional cryptocurrency focus of money, finance. So, you know, uh, opposing centralization, meaning in that uh, regard, opposing monetary mismanagement by the Federal Reserve or, or things along those lines. Whereas this community seemed to me less interested in that. And what they were more interested in was finding, uh, using blockchain technology in interesting ways that help them to, say, monetize artworks, uh, that, that kind of socially oriented uh, approach. And then there's maybe a slightly more political uh, angle to this, which is the idea that they were trying to reclaim the web. So they saw that centralization to them didn't stand for against central banks, but stands for web 2.0 companies, so Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, what used to be known as the FANGs. So these companies, uh, you know, essentially engaging in surveillance capitalism, uh, monetizing your data, and not really giving a fair shake to artists and creative people. And so there would be maybe some potential in blockchain technology to, uh, you know, break free of that mindset on the internet. So that's how I first encountered the term. There was an earlier uh, version of this that goes all the way back to Gavin Wood and Ethereum, but I'll leave that, that aside. Um, and what then became apparent very quickly, and this is something that's really only happened in the last two or three months, 
is that there is a, a lot of criticisms that are coming essentially from people who see Web3 and particularly the venture capitalists who are sometimes funding Web3, but not always. Uh, it seems to be maybe over overblown a little bit. Um, these, these critiques look at Web3 and they see it as a, effectively some vague um, marketing term, a hype term, that there's really no decentralization going on that actually when you look into it, there's lots of infrastructural weaknesses. So Ethereum relies on something called Infura a lot for running nodes, or most art is sold on a centralized company's servers uh, called OpenSea. So there's a, a stretched, imaginary stretched term where more traditionally minded people see it as an exercise in marketing and think it's an empty concept. And then I would say for me, Web3 is more of the authentic, creative, social, progressive wing of cryptocurrency, which is currently under a lot of stress because they feel that they're battling to, um, I guess, uh, keep their, their, their version of the term alive. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. So it's social media, but not social media at all. It's maybe the next generation or a new configuration of that. I would I would say it arises from a, a dissatisfaction with the configuration of Web 2.0, where you know you're you're in a walled garden scenario. There's a, a sense that you don't really have much ownership of anything, including your own data, and then there's no real way often to monetize your work. Say you might be dependent on streaming services and this uh, kind of thing. Whereas with tokenization, with the possibility of either um, establishing a, a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization or and then having a, a community treasury that you can put to, to good work based on what your community is interested in, whether that's music or art, or else by selling uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and raising money that way. So I think it's a, so, a new type of social media where people have a more direct uh, say in the direction of that experience and also the ability to monetize it uh, in some manner. Mm-hmm. This monetization issue seems to be bubbling up in, as you mentioned, this new renewed set of critiques. I say renewed because old timers like you and I, we've seen the critiques come and go every, with every boom and bust cycle. But monetization, I think there's something significant there, right? This is, I think a lot of people, the critics worry that maybe things are transactional. Do you feel like when you're when you're deep in Web3, are you engaging in transactional activities here or is there something authentic or is it just too early to see what that looks like? I think the, the fear is uh, understandable. So there is definitely a tendency in contemporary society toward the financialization of everything. So whether that means young kids who are suddenly uh, trading stocks on apps or you know, suddenly your uncle becomes very interested in some obscure cryptocurrency on Binance Smart Chain and you have to rescue them from a very bad decision. There's the, this sensation that money is seeping into everything, including in this case, of course, it's seeping into, uh, you know, quite creative worlds and quite, uh, quite creative lifestyles. So my experience here is somewhat shaped by my experiences in the past of being involved in the uh, the traditional visual arts world, where I would often see people struggling to get any kind of funding 
and often being effectively in dependency relationships with the government in particular and kind of hoping through grants to sustain themselves on really, really small amounts of money. Uh, and so creativity always has been financialized in that way. There's always been the artist quite close to the precipice of financial ruin in effect. And that's something that I, I got to witness with quite a lot of people that I knew. So when I'm in that world, I do feel the tension. I do feel on one hand, it's really exciting to see people finally be able to monetize their work on their terms. And also the excitement of just seeing people becoming fabulously wealthy, uh, you know, just is always exciting and it's always interesting to watch based on, say, producing an NFT that becomes um, popular. However, it does, it does uh, seem to generate, let's say, um, a lot of uh, complexities in terms of, let's say, what, what, you know, what is the ambition or what is the aim of art? So in my mind, the aim or ambition of art is almost to try to produce something that isn't connected to, um, let's say, uh, it, like isn't shaped too much by financial concerns or isn't shaped too much by the current configuration of society, that there's some way of branching out so my main worry in what I see is just that by making finance so like financial wealth uh, be in such close contact that you could almost make it, it does seem to push the art in the direction of, you know, uh, you know, trying to uh, attract, um, you know, investors and speculators. So, I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, you could probably say that there's always been a class of artists who've made money in this way. It's just they used to target wealthy benefactors and now they target wealthy whales uh in the ethereum ecosystem right yep that sounds i i think that's a uh a, a well put historical point about exactly the relationship of art and art and money uh i i just would like to go back a little you mentioned the sort of the technological underpinnings in uh blockchain technologies and, and specifically a lot of the um, activity in the Web3 space comes out of uh, the Ethereum platform. This makes me think about um, the role of decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs, which is something that we've we've uh, spoken many times about before. Where do you think DAOs fit into Web3? Is this something that's here to stay? Is this need to, uh, something that needs a lot of change? Tell me a little bit about that. My own definition of a DAO these days, uh, because of course they've, they've evolved, is a DAO is a community or a decentralized community, not always, that uses blockchain technology to self-organize or self-govern. And at this point, I'm more and more convinced that the DAO or DAOs are the, the primitive. They are the, the, the more, most fundamental thing that people should be really focused on. In fact, most academics I know at this point are essentially DAO researchers or trending in that direction. And I often forget to explain to, to newcomers what a DAO is, and I'll find myself very casually using it and having to remind myself that it is not something that's super well-known uh, throughout society, even though I, would, you know, I do like that definition, which says a DAO is just a chat room with a bank account. I think that's a pretty good right. uh, kind of encapsulation. So in the past, of course, DAO advocates and the media, let's say, and when I say media, I don't mean this as some distant thing. I've written articles in the media quite a bit, so I include myself here. Uh, focus on the, the second part. So it's the autonomous, self-executing, autonomous code. 
Um, but of course, and you know this better than anybody, the Dow hack basically put an end to that. So it was a very brief flirtation. It still pops up from time to time where a Dow, the autonomy in Dow is associated with kind of self-executing code. It almost seems a little bit surreal these days to remember that that's how we thought things would play out, that everything would just be uh, self-executing. Uh, these days, I think the, the autonomy has shifted. And I, many people say this, so this is not something I'm, I'm putting out there as if I invented this idea, but that autonomy has shifted away from uh, like uh, the autonomous smart contract toward basically the autonomy of the members. So the DAO, when you point to it, you don't point toward the, so, the smart contract, you point toward the, uh, the community members as a collective and how they make use of the technology. So organization in this way would be more of a, a social process. And when I'm in DAOs today, the on-chain or blockchain votes, they're used pretty sparingly. So when I'm in, say, a Friends with Benefits or Gitcoin or Forefront, I mean, DAO voting is, it's not super common and most members don't even engage it. They only the more kind of, I guess, invested in the social sense members really do so. And when it is used, it's usually just to allocate funds. But other than that, yeah, used pretty sparingly. So most of the DAO's work and most of what a DAO is these days, I would say, is off-chain. And especially um, by these small groups. So each DAO will be broken up into sub-DAOs or guilds. And then they, you know, they get some of the treasury and they go work independently on different matters. So we don't even have that sense of the DAO being led by some benevolent dictator, although that's sometimes the case. Uh, probably the um, most uh, shocking thing for people when they first encounter a DAO today is that it's essentially just a DAO server in maybe 80% of the cases. Uh, and then there's just these background infrastructural blockchain tools, snapshot, coordinate, gnosis, or collab.land, and they might turn up from time to time. But yeah, Discord, uh, where they're using a blockchain to manage the treasury, where they've made a token sale at the beginning, equals uh, a DAO today, in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so this really goes to your point of where these the the essence here is this creative and social component rather than uh, a, a blockchain that's very inhuman and, and sort of sterile. This phrase, this autonomy of members as the newer kind of version of what a, de a, a decentralized autonomous organization really inhabits, I think this is really compelling. And it makes me wonder about new forms of, of organizations, new kinds of work, and then politics and new political uh, changes. And I know this is a big part of your, your, your research in particular. Can you tell me a little more about what you, how you see that, that, that part of this changing? This is yeah, my yeah, personal interest, I'd say. Uh, and I also think it's one of those things where um, it's not necessarily central. The political part is not necessarily central to a fair chunk of the current landscape. So one of the more interesting developments, I guess, in contemporary, say, uh, Web3 culture is that there are lots of people who are apolitical. So I don't want to, I'm often cautious about overstressing how much politics is at the heart of it. But I would say in the, the kind of middle, in the, the real, let's say, the influential people who are building out Ethereum, Ethereum particularly being my focus, that they do have something along the lines of a politics. And if we look at the literature on, say, Bitcoin, 
up until 2017, most of it really focuses on Bitcoin's politics. And then, you know, Lana Schwartz says uh, Bitcoin is a theory of society about the collapse of the fiat monetary system. We have the, the classic distinction between the, the cypherpunk and the crypto anarchists. So the cypherpunks are the infrastructural mutualists. Uh, Brecke calls them the, the, the hacker engineers, the hacker engineer dispositions so are building all the open source infrastructure. So that was part of the early Bitcoin culture. Um, another nice phrase of this is uh, algorithmic uh, authority from Lustig and Nardi, which everyone uh, really likes. And then there's the crypto anarchist, which is the, you know, the libertarian, the digital gold, the digital metalism, all that, that, that aspect of it. So all the academic literature, Maurer and Dodd, all these different people, the social scientists who study Bitcoin, they really give you a comprehensive understanding of what Bitcoin is as a political project. And when you're teaching it um, or when you're introducing it to new audiences, explaining Bitcoin is sort of easy in the sense that you can give people a very clear articulation of what the end goal of Bitcoin is, which is something called hyper-Bitcoinization, where we transition from a fiat system to the Bitcoin system. Now, how that Bitcoin system will really play out is ambiguous. We might see how El Salvador goes as a, an example, but we don't really, or so we, we do know that that's what they want. So we know that that's like the end goal uh, and so on. With Ethereum, the politics are way less well articulated. And even what Ethereum is, so the definitions of Bitcoin, they typically focus on the ledger. In Ethereum, you can go to many different sources, whether it's books about Ethereum, whether it's uh, the website, the official website, blogs by Vitalik, the white paper. And the white paper doesn't even have a definition of Ethereum. And they all will give you a different image. So sometimes it's a computing platform, infrastructure, uh, sometimes it's the world computer, probably the most well-known, uh, and so on. There's all these different variations. Operating system is another one. And then that's just the image of what Ethereum is. And then there's not even the, the long-term goal about what it's supposed to bring about. There's been some attempts, uh, in particular radical liberalism. There was a, a flirtation with Vitalik and radical liberalism, which didn't really go anywhere. It did give us the uh, quadratic funding mechanism, which is quite uh, important in a different sense. Um, the other part that he, he pushes at that time is this idea of reimagining corrupted democratic institutions. So that was at least some political angle. But other than that, I've always found it curious that it's not really super apparent what the end game of Ethereum is, even though Vitalik uses that term for technical stuff. So I've tried to point toward what I think Ethereum's politics might be. I tried to use the term hyper governance. So um, the uh, some Bitcoin researchers they they discuss uh, Bitcoin as a a hyper narrative. It's you know this collective act of writing the Bitcoin ledger, and so I tried to think maybe Ethereum could be seen as an attempt to introduce collective decentralized hyper governance. So we're trying to conjure up new ways of governance around the regulative ideal of decentralization. But the difference I think that's interesting. Like a subtext is that with Ethereum, there's way less of a confrontational part. So Bitcoin is very confrontational with the state. You know, it's classic libertarianism. But Ethereum, there's a more subtle sense that what I think they're doing is they're creating surrogate state functions. So trying to be or perform the, the functions of a state without actually being a state. There's an old philosophy called agorism, which uh, points out a similar tactic. Uh, essentially, we could imagine it as, well, 
we create a shadow finance system, so decentralized finance. We create shadow forms of organization, social coordination, so DELs. And then we create shadow creative outlets like the art world. So it's something I'm, I'm trying to work, work out. And I do think the term I use for this is decentralized analogs to state functions. Um, but it is a, a little bit of a work in progress. And, but I find it yeah, particularly curious that we don't really know what Ethereum is uh, for or what its aims are. This hyper-governance phrase, I think, is a really telling one. Maybe we can just back up a little and talk about governance a little bit more generically. Why, why, why is governance so important in, in uh, Web3? I think the governance in general in, say, Ethereum-based uh, cultures seems to stem from, there's a little bit more of a uh, managerial, I guess, mindset. So one of the major differences between Ethereum and Bitcoin, and this is an argument that I really picked up from the, the more contemporary Bitcoin maximalists, is that in Bitcoin, the, uh, the ideal outcome or the ideal state is this algorithmic uh, purity where essentially the, the system would never change. So things would just continue to play out uh, forever where the developers only on very rare occasions introduce some uh, let's say technical uh, upgrades, but they don't actually ever interfere with the monetary policy. So what's sacred to the Bitcoiners is almost an anti-governance. So it's uh, um, the idea that there's yeah no no human inter intervention is is desirable. So it's a really interesting uh, non-interference approach that they they're trying to take. So. The opposite of this is found in Ethereum because Ethereum doesn't have this valorization of the, the hands-off uh, governance. They are very much managerial interventionist. And I think this is where we can probably say something that uh, the one thing we could say the uh, Ethereum political philosophy does make clear is that if there needs to be changes, including changes to the monetary policy, such as the um, the recent EIP-1559, which introduces some deflationary uh, pressure, kind of, it's a little bit uh, ambiguous. But if if there's a feeling that the, let's say, the, the managerial class of Ethereum, the governors, feel that they can like improve the Ethereum world computer, to use that image, or even change the monetary policy, then they will go in and they will do that. And I think that filters throughout Ethereum discussions, the idea that there's always a group of people who are leading the charge, even in supposedly uh, de completely decentralized cultures. There's usually a figure operating the position of like a super governor. So say uh, Andre Kronje at Yearn is in that role where every so often he'll come in and intervene and uh, revive uh, the project. So governance is a little bit of a motor of the Ethereum uh, ecosystem's mindset. So if we've got... Uh, a managerial, as you even use the word managerial class, if we've got uh, some sort of management process, maybe some bureaucratization around this, this leaves uh, this big open question, at least to my mind, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about around leadership and really setting strategy. How, do the, how does Ethereum move forward? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, I think this is where the... The managerial, you know, technical developer first mindset becomes a little bit of a, a trap or a little bit of a danger for Ethereum. 
in that the expectation is that the, the direction of what Ethereum, say, should be, or let's say governance when it comes to more complicated issues that are definitely going to begin to arise as, it, let's say, if Ethereum becomes, um, if Ethereum really does begin to develop, let's say, public goods, say, via Gitcoin. So Gitcoin is an infrastructural public goods funding project, which has the potential to become a little bit of a challenger in, say, areas like open source development, but also beyond that, where they are funding projects which traditionally would have been funded by the state. It's something I think might be happening also with some of the more NFT creative artistic DAOs, where they are funding the artists that traditionally would have been funded by the government. And so I think as that begins to happen, more and more it will be important for people to begin to articulate what the purposes of decentralization are or to at least try to uh, explain when it's okay to have, say, centralized governance uh, and when when it's not okay. Like, does everything have to be decentralized? You, you get a little bit of debates around this. Um, and of course, most DAOs, they wouldn't be decentralized in the sense of like literally every member is going to be voting on everything. Instead, we break it up into these small sub-DAOs uh, where there are you know small leadership positions directing things, and I think we are a little bit tending in this direction, say through uh, research groups like uh, the other internet, where people are and other theorists who are basically broaching this question and filling in the gap. And what I like about this is that a lot of it is coming from academics, and I think academics are in this very very unique position, which I don't really recall seeing in any other place where I've seen academic study where they are able to actually jump into the conversation now and fill the role. So they're actually uh, participants, whether they like it or not, when they write these articles. So it's a very interesting uh, dynamic. And I think, um, yeah, it's a little bit up to us. It's a little bit up to the academics researching these communities to uh, fill what are uh, blind spots and gaps. Right. And this is a this is a big change, though, because you've been studying this for quite some time and uh, academics have not always been uh, both warmly welcomed into the crypto space. But conversely, crypto has not always been warmly welcomed into academia. So maybe as a, a kind of way to wrap up, do you have any thoughts on how that relationship can be improved and, and what and what we can expect for um, driving innovation and, you know, creating this leadership and, and these kinds of activities with that relationship between uh, the crypto community and the academic community? Yeah, one of the more interesting or one of the more fun things uh, for, uh, yeah, for those of us like uh, myself and yourself who've been around a long time, we know that there is a, there was traditionally a an undercurrent of say anti expertise or you know a suspicion toward elites something that cryptocurrency especially bitcoin earlier projects uh, shared with say contemporary alt right populists not making that they are like to be compared but they did both have this undercurrent of disliking elites and universities were a part of this and the media was uh, a part of this as well and i think a lot of that did have to do with the fact that the um, the writing um, was, let's say, uh, like let's say the the critiques of Bitcoin that were coming from academics, I would say, were harsh and warranted. So it actually made sense that that early community didn't like the academic attention because they do have a pretty aggressively individualistic, you know, uh, 
trending toward like unequal vision of society where, you know, if, you if you're living in the Citadel and you have your Bitcoin then everything is fine. But I do think there's a different atmosphere that, that you, you find with younger academics. When I look at younger academics, PhD students who are studying, say, decentralized autonomous organizations today, they're much more immersed and they're much more mixed in. And they're also supported very often. So sometimes either like given funding. So MetaGov is a good example. It's funded by Gitcoin. Um, various different projects actually funded by Gitcoin. Uh, I know there, there are different people I know who are either working for, you know, various different cryptocurrency projects as their, their side gig while doing their PhD. So I think it's simply a case that the, the current uh, Web3 culture is friendlier. It's easier going. The aims are less uh kind of uh, are, sorry are more desirable are more are closer to the the university research mindset that's people who are curious about the world and exploring the world um it's just that the and then there's also the uh the ability to simply jump in so familiarity helps a lot the other day i saw a tweet from a friends with benefits member and he said um a lot of academics were looking to talk to him to do you know interviews and he said well just join like just come into the group you know and I think that that just that speaks uh, to the fact that um, there is a yeah because you instead of looking at this abstract community of say a Reddit board that you can't really interact with and that you're a little bit distant from with a Discord DAO you just click in you join you begin asking questions and it's just like a friendlier atmosphere so I think it's just down to familiarity. On that, I think cautiously optimistic note uh i'd just like to thank you for your you know your really deep insights into something that i think we're going to see a lot more of and uh so thank you very much thanks thank you for listening to our interview with dr paul dylan enos to learn more about the ieee blockchain initiative please visit our web portal at blockchain.ieee.org